back in 2002, in fact, 14 years ago this month, I accepted a contract from Country Club Christian Church to become the senior minister here. Not long after receiving that, I made a call out to my grandmother, Violet Small. She was living at the time in Southern California. I called to let her know that I was moving to Kansas City. My grandmother and my grandfather both grew up on a, on a farm outside of, of Wichita, Kansas. Both of them were high school basketball players. My grandfather, at six foot two, was considered very tall for his, for his time and for his team. My grandmother was five feet ten inches, and she was considered to be very, very tall for her team and, and her, her time. <clears throat> I remember hearing as I was a boy growing up, my grandparents talk about taking trips from their little place in Wichita up to Kansas City. They used to talk about how much fun it was to come here. Grandpa came here quite a bit when they first got married on business, and sometimes they just came up here for a couple of days for nothing more than a good steak. In fact, my grandfather used to say, the best steak I ever had was in Kansas City. I've discovered that's, that's very true. Well, even though we were talking on the phone, I could tell as soon as I said, Grandma, Julie, and I, and our boys, Nate and Steven, are moving to Kansas City, I could hear the smile. You know, I could just feel her smiling on the other end of the phone, and she said, Grandson, you're going to the promised land. <laughs> now, I want you to know that she was right, and we've discovered that we love this place more than we ever could have imagined when we first moved here almost 14 years ago. But my roots are not just from my grandmother's side. That's my mom's parents. Also, my dad's family can trace their roots back to Missouri. In fact, in 1849, my father's great-great-grandfather, my, I guess that's three greats for me, left somewhere around Liberty, Missouri, until he found the Oregon Trail, and he took the Oregon Trail and headed out west. At some point, he took a cutoff towards Sacramento. Sacramento, as you recall, is near uh, Sutter's Mill. The year was 1849. He was there to rush for gold. Maybe, maybe I'm just painfully sentimental, but I live at 128th and Mission. According to a sign, just a short walk from my backyard, Mission Road is the old Oregon Trail. You follow it down South Mission Road, turn west on 135th, and you're on your way to Oregon, and if you want to, you can cut off for Washington or California or wherever it is you're going. Every now and then, I have this kind of mystical experience in my backyard. I could be sitting out on a cool evening like it was last night, just enjoying the beauty of a, of a fall day in Kansas City, and then realize my relatives walked right there. I'm like 20 feet from my backyard 160 years ago. And I don't know what it is, but there's something spiritual about that, about knowing that truly, as my grandmother said, we've come home. To a promised land, a promised place. You know, I first visited Kansas City back in the 1980s. I took a van load of kids from my youth group out in California to Eureka College in Eureka, Illinois, where there was a Disciples of Christ youth event going on. On the way back to California, we stopped in Kansas City, stayed somewhere in, in Overland Park with uh, the family of, a, of one of the kids who had some family there. They had a big, huge house, large basement where, all the, where, where we spent a couple of days. We swam in their sub, subdivision swimming pool, and, and for three nights, we ate barbecue. One, two, and three nights, every night. First time I tasted Kansas City barbecue, I said, yeah, boy, I got some family and friends around here, I can tell. I don't, again, I don't know what all that means, but they're just something mystical about finding your roots, about finding out where you're from, and being even in that very spot. Family, though, 
as we're seeing these days, is not limited to bloodlines. Families are created often when love and sacrifice, when honor and care are at the center of the relationships. Families can be created in all kinds of ways when promises are made to be together and a willingness is expressed to take on life and whatever it is that's before them. Well, Ruth, who's the focus of today's sermon on on deep courage, has frankly lost her family. The text that that Monica read for you tells the story of of her tremendous loss. Ruth was a Moabite woman. Moab was located east of Israel across the Jordan River Valley in what is today more or less the, the country of Jordan. She was married to an Israelite man. That man had immigrated from Israel to Moab with his family, his mother, Naomi, his father, Elimelech, and another brother. They'd moved to Moab during a famine in Israel. Now, that wasn't a very long move. If you've been to the Holy Land, you know that Bethlehem really isn't that far from the Jordan River and therefore from the country of what is now called Jordan, what then was known as as Moab. So it might seem kind of strange that a famine would occur in Bethlehem that also wouldn't be in place just 50 miles or 75 miles away. But frankly, the the Middle East is made up of, especially the the Holy Land, is made up of a lot of microclimates. You can be in Jericho, for example, and it can be 105 degrees. You drive up the mountain up to, to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is located. Suddenly you go from brown desert wilderness to this lush green area where it might even be 30 degrees cooler. There are all sorts of little microclimates like that, like the Napa Valley, if you've been out there. You can be in one end of Napa, and it can be 85 degrees. You go up to another end where there's uh, mountains surrounding the the valley, and it could be like 55 even. Different grapes grown in different climates. The Holy Land is very much like that. So it's not unusual, really, that they would travel not that far, maybe a week's journey, and find a a, a land that was was green and and lush and filled with water and, and good, healthy crops. Well, no one knows for sure the historical setting of this event, but... We do know that the storyteller wants us to see that something tragic is about to happen. As we noted, there were two Israelite brothers who are married to two Moabite women. One of them is Ruth, the the center of our story, and another woman named Orpah. By the way, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. Maybe you can win some Bible trivia contests with that. It's a new start for all of them, but tragedy hits. Elimelech first, the husband of Naomi, dies father-in-law of these two Moabite women. Then the two Israelite boys, grown men now, married, they also die. The result of this is three women, and in many ways, very alone. Tragedy has struck their family. All are now widows. In antiquity, especially in the Middle East, this was a disaster, and not just an emotional one. The three women Naomi and her two foreign-born daughters are by themselves. In the ancient Middle Near East, a a woman alone without a husband was at risk of dying, or frankly worse. Sometimes there was slavery and all kinds of terrible things that would happen if a woman was sold into slavery. These three women are in an extraordinarily precarious situation. They're reeling toward disaster. In their patriarchal society, they were almost completely dependent on men for their identity. Without husbands, there was no one to care for them. Now, there were rules for living and caring for widows in Israel at that time. But again, the storyteller, he doesn't want us to to reflect on that as much as he wants us to see how tough it is for them. They're in a foreign country, at least Naomi is. All the men who would provide for them are gone. Now, there was another law, by the way, that said that 
that if your husband died before you were able to give birth to his child, then one of his brothers would be required to marry you so that you could carry on the bloodline of the family. But as Naomi says to her two daughters, I no longer have any more sons. I'm too old now to bear children. And even if I could, by some miracle, give birth, it would be another 15 or 20 years before he could become one of your husbands. There's just no way that this will happen. You must go back to your people. I will go back to mine. And we'll go forward hoping against hope. In their society, they almost were without options of any kind. We must also recognize that in this patriarchal world, women were often seen and used as commodities rather than partners in relationship. You may recall that there was an Old Testament law, for example, that said if a man didn't like his wife, he could just write her a note, tell her I want a divorce, didn't need any reason, could just send her away. I told that story at the 9 o'clock service, and I saw several men starting to write notes. I'm a little worried about (laughs) what that means, frankly. But honestly and seriously, it was a terrible thing. A woman had absolutely no options, no choices. A man could take her or leave her, do whatever he wanted. In fact, this law was referenced in the story of Jesus' birth. You recall that Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, was concerned that she was with child, And so he decided, the storyteller tells us in the Gospels, that he would just write her a note of divorce and send her away quietly. That's a reference to that Old Testament law. But if you recall, uh, Joseph has a vision, has a dream, and he suddenly sees his wife and her pregnancy through the eyes of heaven, through the eyes of grace, and he reinterprets what is happening and moves forward in faith with her as his wife. Well, these laws demonstrate the lack of power that a woman had 2,000, 3,000 years ago, even in the time of, of Ruth. Decisions were made for women by men. Today, I think we can say that we've seen major strides, especially in the United States of America, for women. I mean, it took too long for women to receive the vote, but it finally happened here in this great land. The the need for equality is seen as an important issue for for most of the people in our country, and equal pay for equal work is something that will soon happen, I'm, I'm sure of this, eventually for us. There are all sorts of wonderful things that we can point to in this country that have helped bring women and men into equal status, especially, especially in the last 100 years. The strides forward are significant. Or are they? How far have we really come? Frankly, the debasement and objectification of women is a serious problem in our land. There there seems to be no limit to the ugliness that some will say and worse to the way power will be abused, the way women are too often treated in our culture. This week I've been in conversation with some of my colleagues in ministry about this issue and the way it affects everything in our culture from schools to neighborhoods to churches to shopping malls and even all the way to the halls of government. It seems as though we cannot escape the fact that this objectification, this mistreatment of of women is a serious problem in our world. One of my minister friends told me about a a memorial service he held two weeks ago for an 18-year-old woman. He told me that four years before, when she was 14, she was assaulted by three boys at school. She suffered seriously from PTSD. PTSD. 
post-traumatic stress disorder. For those four years, she was terribly depressed. And then she took her life, just 18. Another friend told me about someone connected to his church who was also assaulted at school recently while one boy held the door of the bathroom closed and the other attacked her. My, my friend, this pastor, he, he, he wrote, Objectifying women, sexual harassment, and sexual assault all reflect a very confused and distorted picture of life. And he's right. But ultimately, it's more than that. It's more than a, a male versus female kind of issue. It's about the abuse of power and one's position and place in life to get whatever it is you think you want in that moment. This affects women, and it affects men. But frankly, this, this is why I continue to listen to the Bible. The Bible wrestles with these issues, ones that still find their way onto our news sites, our websites, our televisions, our schools, our churches, our living rooms. The book of Ruth is this amazing story of, of perseverance against all odds. It appears in the Bible, interestingly enough, immediately after the book of Judges. The book of Judges was referenced this morning in that awesome anthem, by the way. Now, we, Paul, we, where'd Paul go? Where, there you are. We were rocking and rolling this morning. Man, this was great stuff. They sang about Samson, the great hero, whose story is told in the book, in the book of Judges. And there are other stories, like the story of Gideon, kind of a fun story about this, this leader in, in Israel who doesn't need thousands of men to protect them. He just needs a few faithful men to care for them. But at the end, there's some pretty ugly stories. And if it was made into a movie, it'd be rated R at least, or maybe worse. At the very end of the book of Judges, there's a story of 600 men going and raiding a nearby country where they take 600 women and force them to be their wives. That's called kidnapping and worse. And the last verse of Judges recognizes how ugly things have become. The very final verse in Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. They just did whatever they wanted to do because they could. They were their own worst masters. Take a woman and use her for your own self-centered, narcissistic desire. Sure, go ahead. If you got the power, go ahead and do it. You know, the more things change, I think you know the rest. Then along comes this, this tale of Ruth and her great courage. I mean, it's immediately after Judges and the ugliness and the violence and the kidnapping. Here comes this story of this woman who's faced with a difficult and frightening path. In a world dominated by men, she appears to be hopeless and helpless, yet she makes the courageous choice to move forward with her mother-in-law to leave her homeland, to leave the familiar sights of her friends and other relations, to go with Naomi, her husband's mother, to a strange land where she will be an outsider, a, a foreigner. But for Ruth, none of that matters. She has become a part of Naomi's family, not just through the marriage, but by choice, by the power of love and the decision to care for one another. In fact, in verse 14, it says that Ruth clung to Naomi. It's the exact same word that you find in Genesis, in the story about Adam and Eve, where it says that a, that, that a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. It's an intimate word, a, a, a word that describes a relationship where the two care deeply for the other. Ruth clings 
to Naomi. She leaves everything behind to take on a new country, a new culture, a new religion. You heard Monica read it. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth adopts herself into the family of Naomi. You probably heard that read at weddings before, and it's fine for that. But within the context of the story, we see that it is an unbelievably risky idea for her. She's leaving everything behind. But what she's doing is she's making a way out of no way. She's finding a path where there is none. And in great vulnerability, tremendous risk, she finds the courage to move forward with this family. You know, in the introduction, I talked a little bit about family. And it's almost mystical power to create connections for us, especially when we find ourselves back to our roots. Earlier in the service, we dedicated three children. Many of you have told me that you enjoy the children's dedications more so than Easter Sunday or or Christmas Eve. I mean, Christmas Eve, the place will be packed, every pew filled, we'll have extra chairs, there'll be 900 people crammed in here three different times, same thing on Easter Sunday morning, it's a beautiful experience, there's the brass are here, and it's just the choir loft is jammed, and the music's amazing, and yet many of you have said, you know, when we watch you and Monica and Chuck and Carla and Joe carrying those little babies, that means more than anything to see that our church family embraces these tiniest and most vulnerable members of our church. I hope you noticed earlier, she's asleep now, and when I was holding her, she was crying. But I hope you noticed earlier that little Harper over there has dark curly hair and dark skin. Her two dads are a couple of pale-faced white guys like me. So you know, you can probably guess that she was adopted. They flew down to Alabama, I think it was, and they were there when the birth mother gave birth to this beautiful little child. Yeah, the paperwork says an adoption, but I can tell you right now, that's a family. It's not about bloodlines. It's not about tradition. It's about two people in love with each other, in love with their child making a life together. That's true for all of the babies, and some of them had to go. That's true for all the families, for, for all the babies. Do, do you know the rest of the story of, of Ruth? Well, she'll, she'll go to Bethlehem with her, with her mother, mother-in-law, and there'll be some talk. There'll be the neighbors will start to talk, and they'll say, you know, she's got to have a husband, but there's no brothers. What are we going to do? And they start talking, and they remember, oh, do you remember Boaz? He's not married. He's a cousin of Naomi's. That'll kind of work. That'll kind of cover the law. The, le- the legal experts get together and say, yeah, that'll work. That'll, that'll be covered for the family thing. But really, it doesn't matter because Ruth and Boaz, they do meet. And no matter what the nosy neighbors and family members are doing, they actually do fall madly and deeply in love. They marry. Ruth has a baby. They name that baby Obed. Obed grows up. He has a baby after he and his wife are married. They name that baby Jesse. Jesse grows up, and Jesse's married. He and his wife have seven sons. They live outside of Bethlehem where they tend their sheep. The seventh, the youngest of the seven boys, is named David. And he becomes 
King David, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. I wonder if he heard the stories of his great-grandmother, Ruth, who followed her heart with her mother-in-law to the family that they created. If you skip ahead in the Bible and you read in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find out that Ruth and Boaz and their son Obed and their son Jesse and their son David will also be a part of the lineage of a couple named Mary and Joseph who will give birth to a baby, a curly-haired, dark-skinned one, no doubt, named Jesus. That little boy in his mother's arms, he'll grow to become a man, a prophet, a rabbi. Some will call him the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. And that rabbi, that man named Jesus, when he stands up to preach, he will stand and say, in God's family, in God's family, there are no barriers, there are no walls, there are no bloodlines to see who's in and who's out in God's family. In God's family. We are already included in the family of God, where love is the only connection we need. Amen.